Hey everyone, welcome to Bridge Stories. This is our new podcast giving people space and time to tell their stories of encountering God and being changed by Him. We hope you're encouraged by these stories and also that you leave excited that you know a lot of really awesome people a little bit better. So sit back and enjoy. For whatever reason, how our paths have crossed over the years, I feel like I know just enough about you to be really interested and curious, but it seems like every time I see you, I end up in a a really deep conversation with your wife. So I just thought, (laughs) my my turn to talk to him, Anita. Okay. Um, And you're coming straight from getting your eyes dilated. So uh, everyone who's watching this, um, you need to thank Don that he's sitting under the bright lights at Bridge Community (laughs) Church after an eye appointment. Um, But hey, right before we started, we were were chatting a little bit. I think just just fill people in. I'm trying to get from point A right here to point B, where you're going to tell me in a couple minutes how you got permission as a 14-year-old to ride a dirt bike on a city road. So, okay. But tell us how, where you grew up, what your childhood was like, all those sorts of things. Okay. Well, I was born and raised in Fullerton. Uh, never moved out of Fullerton until 20 years ago when we moved to Orange. And uh, When you were 18, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, growing up in the the fifties and the sixties, it was it was a uh, different, and I uh, I was my mother was uh, Pentecostal. Okay, and so I grew up like your son. I grew up in church. I never knew uh, a Sunday where we weren't in church from the time that I was born. Or had any recollection till, yeah. uh, until I was about eighteen. What, what what can you remember of? Uh, so I'm I'm thinking Pentecostal church in the fifties. Mm-hmm. What can you remember as a small kid being in a Pentecostal church service in the fifties? Well, there was uh, there was a lot of uh, speaking in, in tongues, and uh, I can remember the this one guy in the church. The church that I went to was in Buena Park, and it, the congregation was about a hundred people, so it was a very small, tight knit, okay, group. But this, and it was a, a wood frame building uh, with wood floors, uh, built on a budget. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, there was this one guy uh, set up towards the front, and every time that he would get ready to speak in tongues. You could hear this, his foot just going, 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 going. And then we were going, he's going to go off, he's going to go off. It's like a, a pitcher tipping his pitches. You know what, you know what pitch is coming. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, it was one of those deals where, uh, you know, being Pentecostal, it was something that you were kind of didn't want to share with anybody. Okay. Because everybody has this picture of or opinion of what these guys are wacko, you know. And so, did you kind of pick up that vibe even at like school or something? Like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. And uh, though the 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 Christian aspect, you know, it was it was there, but you were embarrassed by the label. Okay. And uh, my dad was. Uh, he didn't like us going to church. Oh, interesting. So you were primarily going with your mom. Yes. Okay. 
and there were there were five kids. And uh, where, do you, where do you fall in the mix of the five? Right in the middle. Hey, me too. Middle of five. Yeah. Oh, I've never done this. Reach over and high five. <laughs> <laughs> so I was right in the, right in the middle, and uh, my mom used to take us to church. My grandmother went there and and uh, brought our cousins. Uh, there were five of them, and uh, we all, you know, used to just go to the the same thing. But it was one of those deals where eventually when I met Anita, I met Anita in high school. Okay. I was a senior. She was a junior, and uh, she went to a missionary alliance church. And uh, we, I went to her church, and it was just, to me, coming from that Pentecostal background, it was just dead as can be, you know. <laughs> Everything was so scripted, and and you sing three songs out of the book, and you sing first, second, and fourth verse, you know. And it was just like, there's no life here, you know, yeah. <laughs> to me. Yeah. And uh, so she went, I took her to our church, and she was, <laughs> she was scared to death. <laughs> <laughs> and so it was one of those deals where, okay, we've got to find something that is will satisfy each of us but not be in that place where you're just either bored to tears or freaked out, you know? Yeah. And so we started going to Melody Line. Okay. So what year would that have been? That would have been in, like, 1971. So you, you guys had started dating by that point? We had started dating— can I can I back you up because I, I have a question. You you told me before we started that you grew up and your dad was a cop. Yeah, but he didn't go to church. Right. So was he kind of? Uh, I'm I'm just picturing you know cop in the '60s, kind of a disciplinarian, kind of hard guy. No, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. He he was he was in the you know the army during World War II, stationed in the Pacific, and okay. he had joined the army like four years before Pearl Harbor. And he was scheduled to get out in February. And, of course, December, December yeah. hit. And so he was at Schofield Barracks over there. And when they bombed Pearl Harbor, you know, he was there. And uh, when, he, when he came home, uh, he eventually got into the police department. With uh, You know, he was like seven years in the Army then. He was a master sergeant and... So with his military experience, he was able to get a job on the police force. And back then, there were 10 people total on the Fullerton police force. Wow, that's a different world. I, yeah. I can't imagine 10 people trying to police Fullerton now. So three people during the day, two swing shift, and two graveyard. So the new guys got the graveyard shift. And so uh, one of the stories that, that he used to tell us was, they used to either get in drag races with the, they would meet the Anaheim Police Department and they would drag race down Harbor Boulevard. <laughs> the, the two police departments. You could never get away with that kind of stuff no. since the iPhone came out. Somebody would record it and yeah. you would be in so much trouble. Or they used to go in the foothills of Fullerton and one guy would drive the car with the lights on and down these dirt roads and the other guy would sit on the hood of the car with a shotgun, and they would shoot jackrabbits that would run across the... <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was different, different times, different... 
Yeah, I, uh, we're going to dive into your story. I'm just really curious because I, I know still to this day you love motorcycles. Yeah. And you were telling me the first motorcycle you bought was when you were 14. Yeah. And somehow your dad pulled some strings and got you permission to drive it. So tell me that story. Yeah, the uh, he got permission for me to drive on the uh, the street, the housing tracks, but to stay off of the uh, main streets like uh, Valencia and Burkhurst and Euclid and all these streets in Fullerton. So to get from neighborhood to neighborhood, I would just have to cross the street you know and get into this other neighborhood and then you can take off and ride but uh, i gotta imagine you were a pretty cool 14 year old if you went to school <laughs> and kids knew that you could drive a motorcycle before you could get a driver's license yeah it was it was fun but uh this was like a street it was a trail bike uh back you know nothing like a dirt bike nowadays i mean but because it had a it had two sprockets on the back wheel and one sprocket was for street riding, the smaller sprocket, and then it had a larger sprocket, and you had a length of chain like this that when you put it on the large sprocket, then you put this extra linkage in, and, and then you could go trail riding. Uh, but eventually, you know, uh, I would have, I had a, a Datsun pickup truck, and uh, we would have my friends, they each had a dirt bike, so we would have all three dirt bikes in the back of my Datsun pickup truck. And after school, uh, Sunny Hills High School uh, backed up to uh, the foothills in between Fullerton and La Habra, and there was nothing there but dirt trails to ride on from Beach Boulevard to Euclid. So a huge area up there yeah. where you could just, Go have all the fun you know that you wanted to. And, uh, our I, this kid in our uh, in the high school, he uh, was taking a multimedia class, and so he got a movie camera and he would uh, film us out there riding dirt bikes through the hills. And there was this one hill that was really cool. You could. By then, I had my second dirt bike, which is more real than than the the first one and i can remember going i would ride i would do a wheelie up this hill and he was you know filming this thing and then they took it to school and showed it in the multimedia class and it was just kind of a a really neat time so so somewhere along the line you're a senior in high school and you meet anita so a lot of people know Anita. I, uh, I'm I'm curious. What what was your first impression of Anita, or, or how did you guys start dating? You know, there was uh, we started dating. A friend of mine was dating Anita's sister. Okay, and so she was uh, Mike's birthday. He was ha- going to have a birthday party on his 18th birthday, so he invited me to come and. I didn't know this, but Anita's sister had also arranged for Anita to to come too, and so it was kind of this setup that we just met, and eventually we left the party and kind of uh, there was a park around the, the corner from Mike's house, and we went to this park and just sat and just talked, and 
we started dating, and I just dropped all my friends, and <laughs> I was. You were all in. I was all in. Right from the beginning. Yeah. Did she take some convincing, or was she all in, too? Oh, she was all in. Oh. We were both, you know, just, it, it, it was just one of those things where it was so natural and just, uh, it was it was my first girl girlfriend. Okay. You know, I had all kinds of crushers on, but it was the first time that I ever, ever, ever dated in high school. Okay. So you guys start dating, and um, we'll get back to you You trying to find a church that didn't freak Anita mm-hmm. out and didn't bore the heck out of you. Uh, but how long did you get, guys date before you got married? We dated for uh, probably two and a half years. Okay. So you were very early 20s when you got married. I was 19. She was 18. So what you're saying is everyone who's listening that's 19 and 18, you guys should get married? So <laughs> <laughs> I, I was... Two years out of high school, she was one year out of high school. But we got engaged while she was a senior in high school. Wow. Wow. It's incredible. It's it's very much what you're painting is kind of a, a different world, but it's right in the backyard of where we're sitting here. Uh, not everybody, you know, like today, not everybody went to college. Yeah. And so uh, I was going to uh, Fullerton Junior College, uh, and my, well— Coming from a family of five, there was no opportunity for me to do anything but go to junior college sure. and then go to work. Yeah. And that's what, that's what we did. So, uh, so you're, you're raised in this Pentecostal church. She's mm-hmm. in a missionary alliance church. You guys start dating, you get married, but th- there's something clearly where you clearly have faith in Jesus, because mm-hmm. it's it's pretty uncommon for a 19-year-old to kind of venture out on their own and say, one of my main priorities is is continuing to find a, a church. So mm-hmm. what was kind of your, your upbringing in the sense of how you understood Jesus and your faith in Jesus? The, you know, the, the Pentecostal church that uh, there's several sects, I guess, of Pentecostal church and it it wasn't the one that where you have to wear long sleeves you can't the ladies can't cut their hair it wasn't yeah that type of thing but you you know uh, movies were we couldn't go to movies Um, dancing was uh, we uh, went to a summer camp uh, a church summer camp and the uh, of course you got boys and girls in sef- separate dorms, but even the outdoor activities like the pool had a fence around it to where you couldn't see who was occupying the pool. Interesting. So it's kind of a it's kind of an illustration in a way of like building a fence from anything that would tempt you. Or yes, okay, exactly. And so the girls would go. You wear a bathrobe, and you would walk to the the pool and they would have their swim time and leave and then the boys would oh okay so there's not even like co-ed swim time no no (laughs) okay (laughs) good so that's kind of the the uh you know the background that i grew up in and uh it was but the the doctrinal stuff, the stuff of the the, the faith in Jesus, you know, the um, 
all of that kind of stuff was rock solid. You yeah. know, you got the word and you got the thing, but they were just so uh, regimented on on like non-important stuff. Lots of layers of mm-hmm. yeah, almost like the Pharisees. You know that type of thing. Yeah. So I I, I think I have the the year right. You said it was 1971. You and need and you and Anita walk into to Melody Land. Yeah, we walk into Melody Land, and it it was you know it was a large church which neither one of us had attended before, so it had um it had things that we had never seen in in uh, a small church, you know the. And they had activities that you could do. And one of the things that they had there was um, the choir for during Easter, uh, Christmas, and um, they had a charismatic clinic that was that they would have every August in the summertime. And they would have about a 300-person choir. It's three times bigger than the church you grew up at, yeah. just singing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, they would put on these performances, uh, you know, these live productions. And so Anita uh, was a, a singer. Her sister was a singer. They dragged, dragged me along, and we were uh, started participating in these uh, uh, shows that they did. Okay. And because uh, I didn't know... I had no, you know, I had a wood shop, a metal shop. You know, I was never in a singing group or anything. So I didn't know anything, the difference between an alto and a <laughs> soprano and a, a a bass and a tenor, you know. So yeah. uh, anyway, it was one of those deals where it was, it was really special. You know, we ended up going on tour in um, the East Coast during the Bicentennial. And we sang... Well, we went to New York and then uh, to Washington, D.C., and we sang at all these different—we sang at the Pentagon, we sang at the Capitol, uh, we sang— uh, Is that—sorry uh, to interrupt you, but uh-huh. is that is that a, a lot to do with because at that moment of time, Melody Land was a very influential church. You could basically go anywhere in the country, and if that was—you know, yeah. if you were kind of slightly charismatic, everyone would have known of it. Yes. It, it was kind of like— uh, Work Warren's church, you know, a, okay. a big mega church. Yeah. And uh, they had, you know, big name speakers would come in. So it was just a really neat um, thing. And it's funny because being raised in a Pentecostal church, I had never had the experience of speaking in tongues. And even though I had sought it at different times you know growing up yeah it never happened and it wasn't until melody land in my mid-20s that it actually you know i had the experience yeah. and it it was interesting because it wasn't it it wasn't like um I had sought it and sought it and sought it for so long, and when it happened, it, I had this feeling like, "Is is that it? <laughs> is that really it, or am, yeah. am I faking it?" You know, I think 
being from an engineering background, I probably thought too much, you know. Very analytical guy. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so you're attending Melody Land. It seems like you're enjoying it, clearly. Oh, it was, it was a really great time. And uh, by then, you know, we had two kids. Um, what are you doing for work at this point? At this point, after I graduated from um, Fullerton JC, uh, it was right around the time of Vietnam. So as soon as I turned 18, I had to uh, go down and, uh, well, they had the, the lottery, the draft lottery back then. Right. And so uh, th- what they would do is they would uh, pull out, uh, like, well, they would start with, like, number one, and then they had a, a thing where they just pulled out uh, a date, uh, like January uh, 27th. Well, that's number one, okay? And they would go, and they would... Oh, and that was by, by your birthday. By okay. your birth date, yeah. And so every year, probably anyone with a number from 1 to 200 would get drafted. I got 25. And uh, so I was, we were, I was going to junior college. Uh, we were getting ready to get married. And so I uh, applied for a student deferment. And never got word, never got anything that. So I'm just. They had called me down to the uh, Los Angeles at the induction center, and you got to go through a physical process where they deem you, practically everybody one A, one A, one A, ready to go. And so, sure enough, I was classified as one A, and so I was just waiting as I was going to school. So you're you're already in your mind thinking it's just a matter of them calling me and telling me when. Yeah. Okay. And uh, in March of my second year, uh, we got married, and so that was another layer. And we were just thinking that I was good as gone, and uh, so I went down to an induction center and uh, tried to join, but getting in the the uh, Corps of Engineers. And uh, they wouldn't make any promises. They wouldn't, you know, they just wanted you to sign the line for three years and, you know, we'll take care of you type thing. And I said, no, you come and get me. And so uh, mm. as it as it turned out, uh, I guess I had a deferment and it had, when I graduated, it had expired. And... Uh, so I was waiting that summer just to go. So I didn't go out and even try to get a job. I was I was actually working at the Orange County Medical Center developing x-rays in the emergency room. Wow. While I was going to school. And which is now UCI Medical Center. Medical Center. Yeah. It used to be a county hospital. Oh, okay. I had no idea. Yeah. And uh so I just continued working there until and just waiting to go. And so we didn't buy much furniture because we thought that Anita's just going to move back with her mom when I'm gone. And it turned out that uh, in, like, November, I think the draft 
expired, and the Congress and the House, uh, anyway, they went through their Christmas holidays, and it, it wasn't going to be when they reconvened in January that they would renew the draft, and so I was just sitting there through all this time just sweating bullets, but uh, I never got called. Wow. I never got called, and then uh, the following, I don't know, it was February or March, um, they ended the, that's when they withdrew and ended up uh, uh, not having to, to go at all, which was a blessing. Yeah, yeah, wow. So you get to you get to be married, and uh, now you got to look for a job. Uh-huh. So I know I know what you did as a career, but I'm I'm just uh-huh. curious. At at one point, did you start kind well, of heading in that direction? I went to. I had some architectural classes in high school, my uh, sophomore and junior years, and then my senior year, uh, I was I had taken everything that they had as far as architecture, and they had a, a technical illustration class. And I took that and absolutely loved it. It's where you do, like, um, it's more, well, it's half technical and half artistic. And so, so I, I'm not totally sure I'm, I'm clear what that actually is. What, okay. what exactly is that? Well, you know when you buy a toy for your kid and yeah. they have the exploded view yep. of the, the thing that shows all the parts, you know, going yeah, out yeah. and all these. Dirt. I just built one of those, man. Yeah. And so... I would be the one that would draw all of that, the pieces, you know, and and I see. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, and uh, but it was also, you know, like a, being a graphic artist. This was before computers, and so everything was done. All the artwork was done by hand. All the, all of that uh, illustration stuff was drafting, wow. but you know, and I was more geared towards the technical side than the artistic side. I could copy stuff, but creating something from scratch artistically, it just, you know, it it wasn't there. Some guys are just, that's all they do, and other guys. And when you get into architecture, that's the way it is. You've got the designers and you've got the technical guys. These guys tell you how it's going to look. These guys tell you how to put it together. And so I went uh, after Vietnam era was over, I went out looking for a job. And I spent probably six months trying to get a job anywhere. And there was nothing in Orange County. It was all uh, in L.A. And I couldn't. I applied for places and couldn't find anything. So finally I got frustrated. And I saw an ad in the paper for thrifty drugstores. Uh, they were looking for an architectural trainee. Oh, I was thinking they were going to be looking for an ice cream yeah. taste tester, man. <laughs> Best so, ice cream. <laughs> so I, uh, I got my drawings from high school, and I went down and applied, and I got the job. Wow. And I started working there in, uh, like, uh, summer of 1973. And... Uh, it was it was a really neat uh experience because they had um an architectural department 
they had a, a construction department where we would do the drawings um, for remodels, existing stores, and they had crews that would then go out and... This was all in-house. It was all in-house. They even had a, a, a wood shop in back. With they built all the fixtures, so we would do all the, the drawings for the cabinet work and stuff. Wow. So it, it, it was really neat because you it was all in-house, and, and you learned the full scope of everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was there for 21 years, and uh, it eventually got um, caught in one of those corporate mergers where a take takeover specialist came in and bought the company, and uh, then they would just strip it of of everything and then they would sell it off to another drug company and they would end up merging the two companies together. But uh, I got such an education there in the whole building process, being involved in and drawing it, drawing the the cabinets, uh, being involved in the, the actual construction stuff too, not actually physically doing the work, but supervising it to where, you know, it was done per your plans and that type of stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. It, it was it was really, I, it, it's almost like the, the old way of doing it through apprenticeship, you know. I can tell how you're talking about it that you really did love it. I did. Yeah, yeah, it's... It's so cool to to hear stories of people who kind of jumped into a, a career path early on and they just fell in love with it. Life just kind of steers you. Yeah. You, know, you have these intentions and life kind of steers you. And you can see the hand of God as as you look back. Yeah. You can see it so clearly. Yeah. 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 So you, you made mention um, your, you had two kids. So let's mm-hmm. go all the way back to that. Let's talk about... Um, Two kids entering your life, that must have been okay. uh, uh, some whiplash. It was, we waited three years until Amy was born. So okay. we were married for three years and just had this great time of just the two of us, you right. know. And uh, then Amy came along, and uh, uh, almost three years later, we had uh, our second, uh, Aaron. Yeah. A boy. And uh, Amy was... Yeah, people are going to know Amy, so let's let's hear some Amy stories. Well, she was just the perfect kid, you know. Uh, she, you put her to bed, and she stays in the bed. Stays in the bed, <laughs> and she was uh, the compliant kid. Okay, Aaron was just the opposite. He was a handful from the start. You know, he wanted to test the limits on on everything, and Aaron is the one. That got us into Sunday school teaching uh, because we would be in the car driving to Meldyland, coming up the five freeway from Fullerton, and he would. There was uh, Meldyland was built. It was a theater in the round, and then it had this this roof that's that looked like a tent on the outside, a big spire in the. Uh, 
on the top. Okay. He would see that spire from the freeway and just start screaming, you know. Uh, he, wa- he was attached to his mom so, so closely that, well, one of the things about Melody Land was it was so big that the kid would, uh, every six months, he would go into a different Sunday school class. Oh, just because they had to break it up so the much. The age group, yeah. Okay. You know, this is uh, zero to six months. This is six months to 12. Wow. 12 to 18. And and so, and he couldn't handle that transition. Mm-hmm. He would just get used and comfortable with, uh, with the person that was, you know, in there doing the, yeah. the watching and the teaching and stuff. So by the time uh, four years old came around, it, it, it was just impossible to get He's him. piecing things together. He saw that building and knew, I don't, yeah. I don't want to go there. Yeah, exactly. And so... Uh, you know what? I, I hate to cut you off, but it sounds awfully familiar. It sounds sort of like a, a kid who <laughs> ran away from Sunday school a couple weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know. I, <laughs> I knew exactly what, <laughs> how you felt. But um, so we decided that we volunteered to start teaching and that's where we met Millie. Okay, so she was already in place already teaching. She was already she was the superintendent of the uh Sunday school over there. Wow. So we uh she got us a, a place in um kindergarten where we would teach the kindergartners. And uh because they had multiple services, you know, we were in a group that taught from like 9 to 10.30. And because Anita played the piano, uh, she, we would have these singing times. Uh, and so all the, they probably had like four Sunday school classes of just kindergartners from uh, probably 15 to 20 kids. So when you brought them all together, you had like 50 to 60 kids. And uh, and it was because of him that we got hooked up with Millie. And once she gets her claws in you, you know you're <laughs> you're hooked. Is, is she still calling you to this day? Uh, <laughs> she, she's still calling you. <laughs> what year was that? 1974. That was uh, well. Aaron was born in 77, so that was probably like in the early 80s. Okay, it was probably like 81 when. So in your own words, it's not my words. Millie got her claws in you, and I, yeah. I bet she's still calling you 48 yeah. years later. <laughs> she is. Yeah. So uh, we, we, we taught there for probably two years, and then they had that's about the time that that big breakup occurred in Mildeland. You know, there were, there were things going on that uh, caused the church to... Uh, you know, seek other places. And that's when John and Ruth Ann and Phyllis and Noel started uh, Zion. Yeah. And we were there the first day that uh, of the, the church when this place was birthed. Yeah. And so many people tell that story. I, I, I think it was Phyllis was one of the episodes of the, the podcast here. Yeah. And she was saying that, you know, she's sitting in the front twiddling her thumbs, biting her nails, looking in a mirrored room, yeah. hoping that just a few people would yeah. show up. And 
Sounds like more than a few people yeah. showed up. <laughs> it was incredible. And then uh, eventually they bought this building. Yeah. And uh, it was, you know, it was a, a gift from God that, uh, that we did get this place. And, but it needed a, a lot of work, and it needed a lot of attention, I guess. And I'd imagine your, your background, you probably saw some things other people weren't seeing. Yeah. Uh, there was, um, well, about the time that we got this place, um, that's when uh, Thrifty's was sold off. And I was given uh, the, what what happens that Thrifty and Payless Drugstores, which was another West Coast drugstore chain, uh, they combined together. And the, choi- the uh, decision was made to run the combined company out of Wilsonville, Oregon. So I was given the... Uh, an invitation to go up there and and work, and I had just come on the board here at, at this church. I think I'd been on it for a year, and uh, I felt like, well, our by then our kids. I think Amy was either the end of high school. Both of our kids were in high school, or Amy was just starting junior college herself. And I felt like I can't, I'm not going to relocate my family. It's not a good time. Yeah. And uh, my boss at the time, he called me in his office and he says, I don't care what you think is right. You cannot pass up this opportunity. And he basically, he, he just called me a fool for... Um, for making the decision not to go. Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest reasons, because I felt like God had something for me to do here. Yeah. And so I come on the board, and the board guys are like in their 60s and 70s. I was probably in my just 40. And here I am, this this kid... <laughs> Coming on the board, and uh, I'm going, why, you know, okay, God, why am I here? And, you know, we did some, it, during that first year, we did some fix-it type stuff. But on New Year's Day um, in 1990, it was the uh, start of 1995, this beam, this glue lamp beam right here, at the middle of the service, you just heard this big crack <laughs> and uh like thunder, you know, and what happened was the uh the glue lamb had split right in the middle, and there was a a crack running through the the beam you know laterally, probably fourteen feet on each side, where it had delaminated and these beams have a, a camber in them that's uh, like 14 inches, like a bow. Yeah. And so this thing had dropped seven inches with that crack. And that's it's made like that to, to hold the weight, clearly. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so uh, 
the service ended at, right at, at that point, and we, you know, left the building. And so it's just like, okay, Don, you know, you've got the background here, you know, go for it. And so uh, there was myself and one of the guys in the congregation, Corky Hine. He was a contractor, and another guy, Ron Rusk, was an electrical um, contractor. And so I contacted a structural engineer, and he gave me the information I needed to erect a scaffold. We went and rented a scaffold from one of these rental yards. The three of us put this thing together to just stabilize that beam until we could call somebody in here to... to uh, find out, you know, what do we got to do to fix it? And so it was at that point that I knew, okay, God, you've got a, a purpose for me here. And I can see, you know, what, why you persuaded me to stay. Yeah. Yeah. It's got, it's got to be cool, especially as you were saying, you, you felt like the youngster, the young guy. Uh-huh. You know, it's not cool that a, a, a beam delaminates in the middle of the service and cracks, but it's it's got to be just kind of a, a breath of fresh air and a vote of confidence that nobody knows what to do except you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure we'll get there, but that was not the first time you had a major part in making sure this building stayed standing up. <laughs> no. We'll get there in a little while. But yeah. um, So you have uh, two two kids in high school, or Amy's just finishing high school. Um that's kind of an interesting transition for for parents, isn't it? Yeah, it, it's uh, you're kind of already anticipating some independence in your kids, and um, so what was that that season of life like for you? It was, you know, at that at that time that I lost, you know, decided not to take that position. I was able to. There was a a period of about six months that I was able to, one by one, get each one of my guys that were working. Well, by by the time of that 21 years, I was actually in charge of the entire construction and design department. Wow. And I was able to get every one of my guys placed in an architectural firm. Mm. And, uh, but when it came to me, uh, I couldn't find a job anywhere. There were a lot of, of takeovers going on at that time. And so everybody in the industry was just, they weren't moving around. They were just sitting, you know, in place because you never knew if you were going to be bought out you know, the next day or or what. And so I can remember it was on um, 1994, uh, Veterans Day, uh, was my last day at, at Thrifty's. And I remember walking out of that building and going, God, what am I going to do? And... Uh, because I had spent, during that six months, I had also been actively looking for myself. And there was just nothing out there. I would go on interviews, and uh, every time it just seemed like the door was just slammed in your face. And um, 
I would on these interviews uh, I would think okay this is this is the one this is the one you know some of them were worth and I was trying to get a position in another with another retailer or because I applied at Disney uh, for the you know and they had a, a division that just did the uh, Disney stores there was a first interstate bank there was um, uh, Vaughn's grocery store was looking for someone to head be the head of their construction department and uh, okay this this is the one and, and I had you know connections through uh, the people at Thrifty's in the real estate department in the construction department and uh, but I n- never could land the job part mm-hmm. of part of it was uh, I didn't have the formal education to back up of the position that I was trying to get into at these other companies. I I didn't go to school to be an architect. I didn't have a bachelor's degree. But in the state of California, uh, you can, after you've worked in the architectural field under a licensed architect for eight years, you can apply to uh, take the test. And there's there's seven tests that you have to uh, to take. I'm sorry, there's nine. There's nine tests that you have to take. You know, each one of them are in a different area of art, like structural design and um, uh, mechanical electrical plumbing design. Uh, history, architectural history. Mm. And these are all classes that I had never had, but I had had the hands-on experience. Yeah, that's what you were saying earlier. It was like an apprenticeship. It was yeah. like the old school. Yeah, which mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're not learning from a book. You're learning in real time with real materials. Yeah. So I'm, I don't have that formal education or the degree or the architectural license to... Uh, qualify for the position that I was looking for, even though I had done it right. for all these years. And um, I can remember sitting at my dining room table and just going, God, you know, what are you doing? I feel like I'm all alone. Mm. And uh, so I reached out to uh, an architectural firm that we had done business with uh, and it just so happened that they were looking for uh, someone with drugstore experience because they were uh, they just got a save-on account. Okay. Save-on drugstores. And there were another drug chain out here on the, the West Coast. And so they decided to take a chance and, and hire me. So I was now working in an architectural firm. Uh, where you are the um you're hired by the person that I used to be to do you know the the new stores and stuff and I was in my former position I would hire them to do the the new stores and then I would do all the quality control and in the uh, you know redline their drawings and say right. here this is not right fix this 
And so it was now I was on the other end, and these clients were, you know, it was such a, a, a switch yeah. from what I had been. But um, I got the kids through through school and, 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 you know, got Amy through college. She graduated from um, Vanguard University. Yeah. And uh, Aaron... Uh, Aaron was, uh, he wanted to go in the ministry, and he wanted to be in, like, urban mission work. Mm. He had a heart for for hurting people. Yeah. And, uh, but so, and he wanted to go away <laughs> to go to school. <laughs> so uh, he got accepted at uh, Moody in Chicago. Oh, yeah, Moody Bible Institute, mm-hmm. yeah. He got accepted there. Well, Moody is a very, um, a kid from Southern California doesn't fit in in a school like that that is kind of uh, very conservative and very uh, like a Midwestern culture, I I would say. So Aaron was taunted by kids and uh and he would do stuff just to make them just to freak them out like one time he dyed his hair orange and it just sent these kids in a tailspin and so there ended up being so much um uh conflict that he kind of gave up hmm. towards the end of the first semester okay and he called us up and and said you know, I I want to come home. And I said, no, you got to finish your finish your semester. And, you know, you, you got to finish well. At least get through that, and we'll come home. You know, we'll bring you home, and we'll you know transfer you to another college that would fit. So, Aaron um, came home. Uh, finished out the semester and come to find out he just quit going. Oh. And uh, so his first semester was just gone. Yeah. And so um, there's another Bible school out here in, uh, uh, it's out in San Dimas area that's affiliated with Assembly of God or something. I can't remember the name of the school. But he ended up going there living at home but um commuting out there commuting out there and uh he Aaron was not fit for college <laughs> he he sounded like uh from the day he was born he was uh, yeah. testing the limits and yeah. having a good time <laughs> Aaron was a charmer and people either, either you either loved him or you just absolutely you know, couldn't stand it. Teachers were, you know, he, he grew up with getting in, you know, either either charming him or they just hated the guy. So did that come from you or did that come from Anita? Oh, that's Anita. <laughs> <laughs> She's going to hear this. You want me to edit that out or you're yes, okay no, with that? I'm okay. <laughs> no, but he, you know, it, it's that type of personality that they're the creative ones. Yeah. They're the ones that get the stuff done that the people like me that are 
I like this box, you know. Uh, right. I I like the rules and I follow the rules and and everything's in order. Right. Where he's, you know, that free thinker. And uh, but you know, Aaron got into into trouble. Uh, he had a heart, but he had one foot in the world, one foot in the church, and he couldn't reconcile either one. Hmm. And um, so he basically, you know, the academic career was was over, and he went to work in the restaurant industry. And as all of his all of his friends started to um, grow up and and you know leave the party scene and uh, get married, have a degree, start to have kids, you know he was the one that was left behind with uh, no you know still friends, but he developed another set of friends outside of them that none of us knew about mm. and um he got into drugs and got into you know had an alcohol problem yeah and he just got into trouble financially and and was this was this pretty transparent with with you or was this kind of oh, swept under the rug secret it, it was it was secret until his life just started to fall apart okay you know when he got into financial problems, then it became apparent that there were other issues that were, you know, causing a, a lot of this uh, stuff behavior. And um, he he got you know he lost his car, he lost uh, he, he was living downtown orange here in one of these little you know older homes he was uh renting you know he lost the house and there there were a couple times where he had bailed them out and tried to set him on the uh a path where you know and it just uh it just got to the point to where something happened at where he worked and uh, he left a note on, he, he had moved back home at that time. He's 27 years old now. Mm-hmm. And he had moved back home, and he left a note on the counter in the um, living room, or in the kitchen, where I'll, I'm going to so-and-so's house. I'll be, I'll be back in three days. And that was Super Bowl's, uh, uh, well, the last time that we saw him was Super Bowl Sunday, 17 years ago. Yeah. And uh, he left that note, said, I'll be back in three days. And it wasn't unusual when, you know, when you got a 27-year-old adult living yeah, that you're not like at your you're house. Keeping tabs on him yeah. all the time. Yeah. We worked days, he worked nights, and we hardly ever saw each other, even though, you know, he would sleep during the day and we were. But so he left that note, and that he was gone. Hmm. And uh, I believe that he got into trouble uh, and decided to just, it was better to spare us 
the knowledge of whatever was was happening and to this day we haven't seen him yeah and you know it drove us to a a place of of desperation it's one thing when when something tragic happens and you can deal with the problem because they're still there but yeah but like, or even with a death, you know, there there is a finality to it. Where with this, there's just, you can't close the books on it, you know. Mm. Uh, it's still just hanging out there. And it, uh, when you finally realize it's gone and you file the, the missing persons report, you find out that because he's a 27-year-old male, he's an adult, he's doing what he wants to do, there's no... It's not a whole lot of resources no. that are even bothering no. to look. And this was, this was before, you know, the Internet. And so you, had, you didn't have those resources. You mm-hmm. just had the old police investigation stuff or, you know, we even hired a, a private investigator to, to try to... To track him through the the typical you know uh, things through the, your social security number and 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 you know to help locate people and uh, you know it, nothing ever turned up so he's probably a different identity you know I think that's probably what happened. Hmm. Um, but it drove us to a point to where that desperation and that despair and the loss of hope. Yeah. And um, Anita was, I'm kind of like, okay, this box, this box. I can compartmentalize and yeah. and move on with, with your life. Where Anita... You know, mother. Yeah. She felt like she was like the only one that was. I didn't have the same level of a concern that she did. So it started to, you know, there was friction that was coming up between us. And we had reached the point to where we just, uh, life was so, uh, the, the daily stuff was so hard to just keep going that you wanted to back out of anything that you could. And one of the tricks of the enemy is to just isolate you. Mm. And so we we went to, uh, to Millie because at this point we were, I was ushering, she was, uh, Anita was, I mean, we were both teaching Sunday school. And we just felt like we needed a break. And so Millie being Millie, she she starts asking questions. And she allowed us to, to back out, but she said, I'll tell you what. I want you to come to our house on Thursday, and we're going to pray. So we started a regiment of going to their house every Thursday night. Mm. 
And for probably like three hours, we would just cry out before God. (coughs) And I can remember being on a heap on the floor. And just crying out to God. But, you know, being being a, a Christian all my life, you don't really, it's through those hard times where the word becomes alive. Yeah. And Pastor John gave us uh, a sheet of paper with some scripture references on it. And John, it, it was neat because the, the scripture reference was there, but he didn't write out the verse. So I had to go and write out the stuff that that John um, gave us, and uh, and you still have it. I still have it. It's it's here somewhere. But uh, and what it was, it, it wow, it broke down when I, when I wrote those scriptures out. It broke it down into. Some of them were God's character. Some of them was a restoration of hope. Mm. And the last one, the last one was warfare. And I'm going, I can't do warfare. So we started... Through that and through those times at Millie's house, we did that for seven years. Wow. And through that time, what we would do is we would start to just, uh, well, over a period of time, you start, okay, let's read about God's character. And you just recite those scriptures. Before we prayed, we'd just go through the Bible. And we would just start rehearsing the character of God. Wow. And once you get the character of God in your head, you get, the hope starts to come back. And once that's restored... And you're ready for warfare. Mm. And I started, you know, you've you've had the, you know the, the names of of Jehovah, you know Jehovah Jireh, Je- Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah uh, Shalom, you know all the different things. So I start. Okay, I wanna, I wanna start writing down the character of God, and the scripture references. And so, you know, in the Old Testament, you know, you go through Genesis and Exodus and and um, Deuteronomy and Samuel. You, in Chronicles, you start 
seeing, you know, all of the, that's where all of those things come up. And I got to, to Psalms, and I just went through the book of Psalms and just starting writing out of a notebook at home where I just started writing out these, these things about everything it said about God. I just would, you know, write out. It got to be this, uh, this paper here where... They're not going to be able to see on the camera. That's like size 8 font. Yeah. And it's single space, and it's like 13 pages of psalms. Where... Wow. Where it's... Uh, and it's like, he is. And that became such a healing thing for us and it developed into where we were just you know um, restored to where we started noticing we're not the only ones going through this you know there's people that are going through just as difficult things in the church and so Millie started making appointments with people where we would go to their house and we would bring a group of 10 or 12 people with us and these people would open up their hearts and they would just share what was going on. We'd go through scriptures again for a half an hour to an hour of just rehearsing the character of God and just praying over Praying over what was going on in their home. Yeah. And it turned into a, a ministry thing where, where we were sharing what God had done in us and taking it. Yeah. Wow. It's, thank you for sharing. I, I mean, I could tell it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to just open up and always talk about. As as you're kind of telling the story, I'm I'm just reminded of the scripture that it's by His wounds that you know so often we think of God as you know high and ma- mighty and miracle worker, and we we forget that He too knows the power of a wound. Yeah, I I just think it's so beautiful that even in your woundedness, and you know some of it, like you said, there's there hasn't been a finality, mm-hmm. there hasn't been an absolute. This is exactly what happened, but even in the midst of feeling like, I'm sure you want to know, but even in the midst of that, that God has given you opportunity to say, even with your wound, share your wound as common ground with other wounded people yeah. and, and trust that I'll, I'll use you. Yeah. There was, I want to share something. There was a time where I was traveling a lot, and this, I happened to be back in Arkansas, Bentonville, Arkansas, for a, a corporate meeting with uh, Walmart. And um, I was in a hotel room. It was Thursday night. My wife, Anita, was at Chet Millie's doing the the prayer thing. And because of the time difference, I had, you know, they were, they were praying, and I had 
lay down and gone to sleep in the hotel room. And I woke up a little bit later, and there was just a oppressive spirit in that room. And I remember there was just all of these vile thoughts and images that were just like flashing in my in my uh, mind, and I couldn't stop it. Mm. And uh, as I laid there, I just started quoting some of these. Yes. Mm. You know, and yeah, I just started speaking out that God, you are my comforter. God, you're my strength and my salvation. You said that you would never leave me. You, you know, and just going through these, and just speaking out these precepts. And as I did, I could begin to feel this this oppression just start to. It was like somebody opened up a drain, and it was slowly draining. But there was. At the same time, there was this peace that was just mounting mm. and mounting. And, I, and after a few minutes, there was such a, a calmness and peace that I had never felt before. Mm. And it was, it was fighting with his word. Yeah. And... Um, and that, that's the that's the thing that that we have learned. You know, you've been a Christian for all this time, and how many times have you read, you know, through here to where the scripture isn't alive, or it's become, you know, such a big part of of your uh, life and. You have the tools, yeah. but do you pick them up and you, do you use them? And that was such an, an, an illustration to me of you know, how powerful the, the word is sharper as any twidget short, you know. And I, I don't know that night what would have happened or, or, or what, but I just know that, you know, he was with me, and he was true to his word. Mm. What I what I love about that is, and I love about this list as I'm kind of looking over it is, I, I think so often we can trick ourselves into thinking that that God is kind of like the silver bullet that, you know, you just recite these and whew, mm-hmm. problem solved. Mm-hmm. And I think in your story and, and something that I hope people hear and you sharing some of these things is this is an everyday kind of thing. This is a, a battle that you wage until the Bible is in you, that God's Word is in you. Yeah. And it, it doesn't make the battle easy. It makes the, the, you know, that, that muscle memory of what tool or what weapon you grab to fight it faster and faster and faster. Yeah. I, I love this. Uh, you know what? I might forget, and so I just want to say this. It flashed across my mind. I, I'm just curious. Do you, do you, I'm assuming you have this saved like on a computer. We do. I um, 
people are going to watch this, and I, I just have been doing a handful of episodes and have a feeling. Would it, would it be okay if you emailed this to me? I'd, I'd love to just have these maybe at our welcome desk. Okay. If you could just write a little note from Don Granger. Um, so, yeah, if you're listening to this and you just feel like, man, I have a battle I've been waging or a wound that I just don't know what to do with, um, this, is a, this is a wonderful tool. So we'll have those for people. Um, thank you for sharing all that, Don. I, I know that's not easy. And I know you've shared it a, a lot of times, and it doesn't necessarily get easier. Um, I'm just curious. I, I want to hear more of your story, but I just kind of want to pause. If if people are in a, a similar place, maybe it's not the same exact situation, but they just feel like there's no closure or there's a, a wound that just won't heal. What, mm-hmm. Other than going to God's character, um, what what advice could you give to people? What wisdom could you share maybe about your relationships with others or counting on others or, or those sorts of things? What would you share with people? Well, the, the biggest thing, I think, was the um, don't get isolated from the body. Hmm. You know, that was the first thing that we tried to do was to remove ourselves and just kind of hide in this hide in our hurt, you know, and somehow we'll get through it on our own. Do you, was that like a, a conscious choice you made, or do you just feel like in that moment of, of grief and and kind of darkness, that it's just human nature that that's what you do? Probably it's it's human nature, but it's, it's contradictory to your healing, too, mm. you know, because that's where the strength that you can draw from. I mean, Chet Milley, uh, John and Ruthann, you know, they all reached out to us. And it was through that interaction, Peg and Gus, you know, it, there are so many solid people in, in this church that uh, have the experience that and when when you're weak and when you need that strength, you know, they can guide you through it and they can help you through it. And we all tend to think that some of our problems are we're the only ones going through. I can remember we, Danny let us speak on a Sunday morning to tell the story. And this was just a couple months after Aaron had disappeared. And I remember the altar call <laughs> down here where, you know, he said, is it, uh, again, the same thing. Is there anybody that is going through something? And this place just, <laughs> it's filled. <laughs> and you, you knew the term. That's where the idea of you know, using that to springboard into helping others. And that was, I think, one of the biggest eye-openers for us. And it, it also strengthened us. It's it's carried us through yeah. this time. Yeah, it's incredible. Thank you again for, for sharing that. Um, so it's been 17 years. 17 years tomorrow. And I, I got to imagine that just day to day, it's just something that's always, always in the background. It is. You know, every holiday is, you know, as things uh, uh, approach, birthdays and um, 
you know, all the Christmas, Easter, and all that stuff, you you start to feel this a couple days before the event. There's just something like hanging around until you're not even aware of it that, yeah, okay, you know, this is another Christmas or this is another birthday without Aaron. Yeah. I, uh, I imagine based on how you describe this personality that you tell stories about him. I'm just, I'm just curious. You got to have a, a go-to story that just brings joy to you. What's, <laughs> what's a, what's a family story about Aaron? Well, he, he was the life of the party. He was, he was always the one that he would, he loved to press my buttons. <laughs> no, the, we, the type A square box yeah. thinker is getting his buttons pushed yeah. by the out of the box guy. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, he would just, uh, he was a special kid. And, you know, God had a calling on his life. And that's what we pray for all the time, that, that you know, that, God, that you would use him, you know, whatever life experience he's going through, that, first of all, that you would speak to him, you know, that that you would help him to remember that calling and that, that you know, that he would be able to fulfill it someday. It's mm, awesome. Yeah. Well, I, I, I want to move our, our story forward a little bit. I, I think it's a huge jump in time. Uh-huh. But I, um, I didn't know the story about the, the cracked beam uh-huh. up here. And, you know, it's interesting how you described it. You, you had kind of described it as you were the youngster on the church board and mm-hmm. feeling like, where's my place? And then all of a sudden, a huge lamb yeah. starts to crack, and that's your place. Yeah. Um, so people might not know this. Um, I don't know if the photo is still up in our lobby, but there's a, a photo in our lobby, yeah. and it's a quick snapshot of a, a moment in time in this church's history where this current building and how it looks right now, yeah. there was a de- decision made more or less that, you know what, we want to leave something beautiful to the next generation as they, they grow into leadership and, and minister. Yeah. Um, Tell me a little bit about you were on the church board again. Yeah. What was the the gap in time? Well, I was on the church board for twenty four years. Okay, a span of twenty four years, and um, so by the towards the towards the end, uh, Danny had a a vision of what you know he wanted to uh to do here the church you know how the story of the how the uh israelites or the the hebrews when they were in the wilderness <laughs> you've been preaching yeah. about it. their shoes never wore out yeah well that was this this building how we, we felt that you know there there was never god always provided but there was never enough for a big project you know we had kept this building going with band-aids and and everything else the I, and i'm sure with your background you looked around and you could find the band-aids pretty yeah, quick yeah. <laughs> and uh, so danny had a vision of of you know what we would like to to do we had a, a large auditorium 
where it seated about a thousand people, and but yet our congregation isn't that big. The, the office spaces were were horrible, and they were spread out to where nobody was together. You know, well, somebody, that's what you really think. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so anyway. Uh, and kind of the mentality, too, was don't borrow money. You know, just keep it going. And, uh, well, it was decided that, okay, we are going to proceed with a renovation. We are going to, we are going to borrow some money. And uh, so Danny, George, and I started visiting probably, you know, Three years before the renovation started, we started visiting other churches and looking at. We went to uh, a large church out in uh, Newport Beach. We went to a small church here in Orange. Uh, we went to a, a medium-sized church. In fact, the Vanguard University had just renovated there. Uh, there's a church sanctuary there. And uh, we went and looked there, and from each one of them, we were picking ideas and and getting to the point to where, okay, let's get something down on paper. And so with the the knowledge and everything that that God had given me and and started to, you know, draw some sketches out, and so we did a lot of research and everything— and it finally came to the point, okay, let's draw a, a uh, the actual building plans. And we called structural engineers in here. Uh, we called, you know, the different sources, and they started to look around and investigate stuff. And come to find out the when the solution, you know, to fix these beams, they put these post-tension cables in, and there's like, I don't know how many thousands of pounds of uh, of pressure to bring those uh to keep the 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 camber in these things where well, it was causing problems these these glue lamps sit on these pilasters you can see on these back walls well the caps of the pilasters because of the tension the uh tension that it created started to pull and started to crack the top of these pilasters and the building was built before the uh, the Northridge earthquake and, you know, all of those things. So the there were seismic issues in here that had to be addressed because the, it was just falling apart. And there it, there were things that we discovered that were uh, could have turned into another catastrophic. Uh, failure of uh, you know the structure and so we we you know spent unfortunately the the because of funding and the uh, different loans and the banks holding up on releasing funds and stuff uh, a six-month project turned into like two and a half years. I remember. <laughs> <laughs> I recall. And uh, but you know, uh, I've told Danny. I, I said this is kind of the crowning moment of uh, of my career because I spent 
my whole career of 45 years doing retail buildings. And this is something that God allowed me at the end where I felt that I did something with an eternal value. Yeah. You know, you use those. So just for, so we're clear, mm-hmm. when people hear this, you designed this building. Yeah. Yes. And, and people, I don't know if you know this, but still to this day, we will have a guest here and they will walk in and say things like, wow, I had no idea this building could hold something inside so beautiful. Yeah. We get comments. I just got a comment last week. I had a, a group of guys and they came in. They said, is it okay if we walk around and just see these offices? I've never seen offices so so cool. Yeah. And I, I always just chuckle. I just think Don Granger did that. Yeah. <laughs> It, it, it was one of those deals. There, there, there were a couple things, you know, uh, on the board and uh, like the Sunday school rooms and stuff. That was all Amy, my daughter. Uh, she was on staff at the time, and that was her idea. And yeah. she put some ideas down on paper, and, uh, you know, the board, you know, gave us a, a budget, and... So all those things in the Sunday school rooms I built in my garage. <laughs> and it's just been fun to use that talent that God's given you, not only in in architecture, but in, you know, I, yeah. I like to do woodwork and I like to do, so, uh, you know, the classrooms that your kid is in now, you know, all that stuff was built in our garage Anita painted a lot of the stuff, and it was just yeah, a really fun time of feeling like, okay, you're pouring back into the place, and you're building a, a fun environment for the kids to where it's, you're not going into a room that's just four blank walls and... Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you said that. I, I had this gut feeling that I was going to have to like pull it out of you because uh, you're, you're a humble guy. <laughs> Um, do you ever, do you ever just sit back like on a, a Sunday? Do you ever feel like God just whispers to you like, well done? Yeah. I, I, I'll sit in here and, um, I'll just look up and look around and just, you know, thank God that, you know, it, it took a lot of people to do it. it of course. It, yeah. It, yeah. It wasn't just me, but, uh, it, there's that scripture that uh, talks about, you know, from your generation to this, you know, gener- the being part of God's family, you know, the, the generational thing is so important. And that's what I liked about this so much is like, okay, we're good for another few generations to... Uh, you know, use and wear this place out, and then you know somebody it'll be somebody else's turn to come along down the road and uh, you know d- fix it for the next group. Yeah. So if you're eight or nine years old and you're listening to this, go into architecture. We're going to need you in about fifty years. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's that's awesome. So um, you know, we're we're kind of heading towards the end of our our time here together. But I know there's lots of change going on in your life. Mm-hmm. And, um, just what's on the horizon for the, the Grangers? Well, we're actually 
moving to Tennessee. Okay. Um, you know, I, I knew that God, back in 95, I knew that God had called me to stay here because there was a purpose. Yeah. And I felt that my purpose, that we were kind of between generations and Anita and I you know there it seemed like everybody was like when you look at um, a lot of the founders we were like 10 years in age behind you know these people and then you've got the founders kids that you know were you know 10 years behind us and so I always felt like I was a bridge uh, from like Noel and John, uh, a, a bridge to help Danny, you know, um, you know, the, Danny was so young, you know, he, and I was that bridge being on the board and doing, you know, all the stuff that, that, that we were involved with that through that period to where now this is established, the sanctuary is, is done, the church is in great shape, and I feel released. Hmm. That's, you know, I, I think you said something that's so key. I've had this conversation probably 15, 20 times. It's the conversation of, uh, if we're honest, California is not the the most convenient, comfortable, affordable place to live anymore. Yeah. It's yeah. just not. Yeah. Um, and I love what you said because I, I've been trying so hard to to communicate to people. If if you want to move, if you want to leave, make sure it's God's calling in your life. Yeah. If it's God's calling, then then peace to you. God is going to have something incredible for you, but. I love what you said because, you know, there's so much of a temptation to run away from adversity and difficulty and challenge and not ever consider is this where God is calling me to. Mm -hmm. So I I love how you how you said that. I I think I just want people to know that I 100 percent know that you're called to it. And I love that you you felt like that opportunity arose long ago and you felt like it wasn't God's time and it wasn't God's call yet. You know, as we um, kind of wrap up, Don, I I was thinking about you and. I was flipping through some verses. I, I knew that um, you were going to come on two or three weeks ago. You said that you would you would join me up here. And so I was just kind of reading through in the, in the morning. I like to occasionally read through the Psalms. And when I get there, I read Proverbs. And then I just kind of start over. Mm-hmm. Um, no rhyme or reason to it. I just feel like it's a good place to start. And I, I was flipping through the other day. And I, I thought, I think this one's for Don. And I, I think um, I think the verse that I want to read you, it's a really simple one. But my hope and... I, I hope that you hear this from me. This is kind of my impression of you. This is kind of how I view you. And I, I hope that you hear that. I think this is a lot of people's view of you. And I, I think as they listen to this podcast, I think it's just more true than ever. It's, it's from Proverbs chapter 10. It says, When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains, restrains his lips is wise. When I read that and I was thinking about you, I I thought, you know what, in some ways you're kind of a curiosity to me, which is why I wanted to talk to you, because I've never talked to you like this before. This is really cool. But there's just something about you, Don, that every time I've ever, you know, even just said hello to you is 
I think people know that there is wisdom locked up in there. Mm-hmm. That there is um, there is a depth, and I, I think some of your your stories of joy and pain are part of that. But I, I think that your wisdom has come out in so many ways, other than just your words. It's uh, this place, and I hope that even as you um, you know transition and you you head to to Tennessee. Um, I hope, you know, there's a whole generation that might not ever know your name, but they are living into the blessing that you had left them. There's going to be people who come to this stage and say, I want to follow Jesus with my whole life. And part of that was they came into a place that seemed comfortable mm-hmm. and approachable. And you had so much to do with that. So I just want you to, to know that and hear that from me. Um, I know these conversations for you are few and far between, so I got to get it all in there. Um, as we kind of wrap up, is there is there anything you just want to leave with people if if they've heard this and they, they just want to hear some of that wisdom, what is something that you'd like to leave with people? Like I said earlier, I think the biggest thing is the faithfulness of God. I can look back through my life through every, everything where you, you're not seeing. You wonder why. Why didn't I get that job? Why didn't our house sell at that particular time? Why didn't... All of these things happen. When you actually look back and see what God accomplished because he didn't do it at that time that you thought that he was going to do it, he is so faithful, and he has always been there, even when you don't feel it or see it or can't understand it. You know, he's there, and it's so evident at this stage of my life, as I as I look back, it's just incredible to see his hand. Hmm. That's awesome. Um, one last question: When are when are you guys taking off for Tennessee? Probably in the middle of May, some uh, about that time. Okay, so what is that? Two, three months, something like that. Yeah. So uh, if if you're listening to this and you got three months to ambush Don Granger <laughs> and get him to talk. <laughs> Yeah, grab him by the shirt collar and tell him, I, I've seen you talk on, on YouTube before, so talk to me. Um, but, but Don, thank you so much for coming. Thank you for saying yes. Thank you for um, just being vulnerable and open. Uh, we really appreciate it, and I hope that this is uh, as big of a blessing to so many others as it's been to me. So thank you. I appreciate you. All right, we're going we're gonna to sign off. Okay. Okay. <laughs>